Hello again, and a warm welcome to this special series of the Hive podcast, featuring the interviews from my new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the ideas transforming the world of business, brands, and beyond. For more information and resources on today's episode, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And for more information around the book, please visit businessunusualthebook.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I speak with Octavius Black, the CEO of MindGym, a consultancy that uses the latest psychology and behavioral science to transform how people think, feel, and behave so as to improve both the performance of companies and the lives of the people who work within them. Having read philosophy, politics and economics at the Queen's College, Oxford University, Octavius went on to work as an analyst at Booz Allen Hamilton and later became a director of the organisational communications consultancy, Smythe Dorwood Lambert. He co-founded MindGym in his kitchen with Sebastian Bailey 20 years ago and floated the company on the London Stock Exchange in 2018 and he has co-authored several Mind Gym books, including Wake Up Your Mind, Give Me Time, and Relationships. Octavius has written for The Times, Financial Times, and The Sunday Telegraph, and together with his team, he seeks to equip ambitious companies with the knowledge and capability to be ready for tomorrow. So Octavius, thank you very much for joining me in conversation. It's uh, it's exciting to be speaking with you today. It's an absolute joy to be here, Natalie. So I'd like to start by asking you what I ask all my guests. And that's to say that we're living through an extremely unusual and interesting point in human history right now. What do you think, if you were to guess, is happening in the global human psyche? I think we're at an incredibly positive place that we can easily get distracted by the issues that concern us. And those issues are, are very real. But actually, as a society, we've moved on enormously. The challenges of famine, of um, war, of pestilence, all of these things have greatly reduced. Our chances of increased literacy are much higher wherever we are in the world. Uh, and in many ways, we are much, much better off on most objective measures. And the things we worry about, like, for example, mental health, have probably been around forever. Mm. And this is the first time we're actually willing to talk about them and address them. And that's tremendously promising because it means we can start to help people. Mm. It does seem to me, actually, when you're pointing out this um, more positive side that, that's so easy for us to overlook and to forget, that we have seen in many cultures a shifting in values, a shifting towards being more open to discussing things that maybe we find difficult and that previously have held shame. And I know that for the research for my new book, one of the things that was very interesting to me was the way in which we're seeing consumer behaviours shift, presumably as a result of this shift in deeper values. So the ways in which we are maybe starting to ask deeper questions about meaning and purpose, obviously within a, a modern context. And I wonder in the, in the realm of business, especially with the work that you do in helping people to make better decisions, shaping the way that cultures can change within organisations, what are your thoughts about how a leader or leaders can construct a culture for employees that actually helps to benefit well-being and a search for happiness or purpose? The purpose is an incredibly important concept that makes us feel that what we are doing is worthwhile. Um, at the core, if you go back to uh, Plato, talked about the what makes up, uh, in that case, mankind, personkind. 
uh, and talked about there's a rational side to us. You know, if I do this, then I will get that. And there's an emotional side. I feel hunger, shame, pity, and so forth. But there's also this sense of identity called thymos, uh, and this sense of being recognised for who I am and appreciated for who I am. And Plato talks about this third element of, of the human psyche, if you like. And it's incredibly important. And as we've got to a stage where our rational minds are, are, are quite well-tuned, our emotional senses perhaps could do with even more development, but actually the sense of identity becomes incredibly important. And if I feel that I'm doing something that matters, that's making the world a slightly better place, that will lift me up. Even in experiments, where you, um, lab experiments, where you ask people to create Lego figurines, and if you uh, let them see each figurine being assembled, they will carry on making them for longer than if you disassemble one and give them the pieces back again. Great experiment by Dan Ariely. Uh, and therefore, the fact that I feel my work matters, whether it's in this task is not being destroyed in front of me or ignored, mm. or whether I'm actually trying to help the world become a bit healthier or flourish in other ways, this is incredibly important for us and, and our thymus requires it. Mm. And so what do you think is the role of leaders or businesses to try and make clear the values that they uphold through the mission statement or whatever protocols they have in place, like a set of business ethics, in attracting people who maybe share those values? I think the interesting thing about corporate values is they end up being much the same. Hmm. There are nine corporate values that make up over 90% of companies' values, and there'll be versions of things like integrity and collaboration and customer focus and performance and teamwork and so on and so forth. Um, actually, what makes for a good and healthy organisation is fairly consistent. Hmm. In the same way as if we were asked, Natalie, you and I, for advice on how to be, uh, lead a healthy lifestyle, <laughs> we'd probably get fairly similar advice, you know. Do more exercise, eat fewer brownies would be the, 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 the nub of it. And, and for companies, it's much the same. So what companies we suggest to do is worry less about trying to define what it is that makes them so very special and unique because actually the core of it is quite similar, but actually get on living it and doing it. And therefore, how do we create a sense of belonging rather than saying that belonging matters? How do we increase the sense of agency, people having control over their lives and destinies uh, versus not? Mm. And what are some of the key things that you find businesses getting wrong in those areas? Um, well, in the, area, in the area of diversity and inclusion and belonging, for example, is that there can be a sense of trying to assimilate people. So everyone needs to be like this. You need to be a, a, a big co kind of person. And this is the kind of people we, we look for here, rather than being much more open to different ways of people presenting themselves that actually bring enormous value. So we know, for example, that there are enormous headwinds and tailwinds we each face from our childhood and birth experience. Uh, and though we also know that we all tend to overestimate our own headwinds. You've got no idea how difficult it was for me. And we underestimate everybody else's. Oh, Natalie had it really easy, she had loving parents, and they're there. And therefore, we end up giving us false sense of being hard done by, and we are less likely to be generous and support others. So helping people recognise this then allows people to, to be more open to people who are different from them and more supportive of those who've had tougher headwinds and fewer tailwinds than ourselves. Mm, that's a really interesting one. I think I was reading something yesterday, writing something yesterday about empathic distress, so the aversive state that we experience when we witness the suffering of others. 
And um, one of the things that came up as being very helpful in reducing this, so to enhance our tolerance of other people's pain so that we can be more compassionate, is mindfulness meditation. And actually quite short interventions of up to six weeks can have quite an interesting impact on you doing it for the benefit of others within your meditative practice. So I'm curious to ask you also what you think are some of the ways or practices that people can engage in to help create the space for that to happen. Mindfulness is certainly one. And another one, I don't know if Martin Sullivan's experiment mm. with um, depressed teenagers, I'll paraphrase. Uh, and one group went through, in effect, reframing exercises, kind of CBT around flexible optimism, and the other did not. And you see this massive change in the level of, of, of depression wow. uh, of those who went through the CBT and the reframing. So I think there's something about mindfulness, there's something about reframing and how you look at situations. There's something very much about increasing agency, mm. focusing on what I can do rather than what I can't do, mm. and how we as leaders in, in businesses and, and, and in families help create agency amongst our, our peers and our colleagues and our, and our loved ones. So to this point of agency, which is fascinating, one of the things that's really interesting about when we see how people engage with the projects they're being asked to, to do is around the ways in which they engage motivationally. So how do you think businesses can better identify and touch upon people's intrinsic motivations? So getting them to do something where there is um, an engagement and a joy in the activity itself so that we can get the best from them and they can get the best from it. I think one of the interesting things about people's commitment to work is there's one group of people, working people, who work longer hours, earn less money, and yet are happier with their work-life balance. And that group of people, no matter which country you go to or when you do the research, is the self-employed. Oh, interesting. So it's that sense of feeling a high sense of agency. And therefore, what I think business can do far more is to give people a range of choices, to give people options, to coach people and support people so they are better equipped to make better decisions. Uh, and most of us think that judgment is important for us. Judgment's a useful thing to have. Most of us think our judgment is, is quite good, mm. but it could probably be better. <laughs> so if we were, as businesses, out there helping people enhance their judgment, we'd probably get quite a warm reception. Mm. And there are lots of, in the world of psychology, for example, heuristics, tricks our minds play, that skew our judgment. Mm. We tend to give greater weight to the last of the list, for example. And therefore, helping people spot those heuristics and, and work them out, and therefore stop them having a negative effect, greatly helps improve judgment uh, and will greatly help enhance people's sense of agency and improve the quality of their lives, as well as the, their performance at work. Mm. And so I wonder, with the ways in which we relate to people who are you know, at work, colleagues, partners, etc. What are some of the ways in which we can help form healthy attachments? Because obviously the relational aspect of work is really, really important for our sense of well-being. So how would you suggest that an organisation go about bettering the quality of the relationships within their sort of internal ecosystem? There are lots of ways of doing this, but at the core is to help people understand how do I set clear boundaries? What do I do when those boundaries are, are crossed in some ways? How do I repair a relationship where it's broken? How do I build a new relationship? Uh, and these are all skills that we can apply and learn. Uh, and the way we frame things, the way we talk about things, the way we connect with people has this enormous ripple effect. We know, for example, there's a measure called the LMX, Leader-Manager Exchange, mm. which is the strength of the relationship between a boss, a manager, and the person mm. whom they manage. And this uh, has a tremendous effect on everything else that, that happens. So when the, the LMX is strong and the boss gives some improvement coaching, it tends to be well-received. 
When the Olympics is weak and the boss gives exactly the same improvement coaching, it tends to be ignored. So this ability to build strong relationships becomes absolutely pivotal, this exponential effect on everything else from coaching to delivering change to wellness and so on and so forth. That's super interesting. And I think when it comes to leadership in particular, I know in the media there's been a lot of talk about a shift from what's called heroic leadership, which is kind of power over others, which is receiving a little bit more heat than maybe it has previously. And I think with the pandemic revealing some fault lines between nations led by the more heroic model of leadership and those with a more collaborative approach, and some of them notably led by women. I wonder what your thoughts are around the type of leadership that we engage in that's actually the most generative in the workplace. I think what you'd prefer to that's really appropriate is the changing work environment off the back of COVID and the increasing hybrid working that we are all experiencing. And for the last 20 years, pretty much, businesses talked about transformational leadership and this great charisma that's used in order to inspire and motivate. And actually, management by charisma doesn't really work on Zoom and Microsoft Teams. You tell a joke and there's silence because everyone's on mute. You know, and so and the ability you can just smile at someone as you're passing the corridor or share a joke on the way into a meeting, all those things that were part of the social glue that formed organisations and part of the ways in which many leaders managed are no longer appropriate in this environment. Mm. And therefore, we need very different management muscles. And some of it's going to be about greater precision. How do I use people's time as well? We know people are spending more time in meetings. People are going to meetings with more people in. Um, the average length of the meeting is decreasing, but the length, the length of the working day is increasing because of this frequency of meetings. How can we be much tighter in them? And then secondly, how can we, can we completely loosen them? How can we have those meetings where you're just having a chat and just to catch up? And what's happening is that in the in-person office world, you could kind of blend between the two during a meeting. Mm. Now you have to be a lot more intentional. So I wonder from that perspective, the nodding and smiling to someone in the corridor that you mentioned, or maybe going for drinks after work or whatever it might be, there's something about being able to just have these points of contact, these light moments where we are relating with other people, we're feeling good about where we are, and it gives us a sense of belonging and also a sense of place and also a sense of culture. And I wonder how we can seek to possibly not replicate that, but re-enrich our relationships in a virtual environment with some of the components that enable us to feel part of a wider culture, especially because now we're, we're so much more atomized and the workforce is so much more remote. Are there specific interventions or practices that you've seen that have enabled people to create this sense of culture and rapport, even though we're translated into a virtual environment? There are, but they are weak substitutes. And it would be a great shame if we don't find a way to return to some in-person connections in the office. Mm. So if we can't find a way of being co-located for two or three days a week, we'll have a negative impact on belonging, corporate culture, loyalty, and all sorts of factors. I was working with the CEO of an ad agency just recently, and he said, you know, advertising isn't tremendously well paid, mm. but a lot of people do it because it's kind of fun. There's a certain mm. zhuzh about it. You go into the <laughs> office and people are wearing the latest clothes and you're swapping music ideas and playlists and so forth. And, and altogether, there's a kind of vibe about it that makes it feel quite thrilling. Mm. But if you're sitting at home in your shared a flat with three people you met on Gumtree who you don't really know, and you're sitting on your bed and laptop, you're thinking, well, why am I doing this? Why don't I go and work somewhere else and earn 20, 30% more uh, for doing a similar sort of job? So this sense of, um, this is in advertising, it's true actually in most organisations, there's something magical about the place 
and the people we work with and the connections that we have that are one of the reasons why we choose to work there and one of the reasons that motivate us. And this has been very uh, significantly affected. And we think that there may be almost a kind of a, a, a delayed effect that during the crisis, we've all rallied around and got together and fixed it and got with it. Mm. But then as we get into a kind of um, status of business as usual, but remotely, we start to be less committed and less connected to our colleagues mm. uh, and more connected in some good ways to our families, perhaps, if, we, if we're living with the family. And therefore, organisations need to find a way to rebuild this. And yes, you can have virtual drinks, but that's slightly agonising experiences. <laughs> you can certainly have virtual escape rooms and that may be quite fun. But really, all of these things are poor substitutes to actually being with other people. And, and human beings are social animals, and, and we benefit enormously from this. Mm, I have I have two questions that arise off the back of that. So one of them is, what are some of the benefits that come from being able to work virtually and maybe looking at, I don't know, platforms that enable us to do more than just engage in a virtual chat? Um, and the other is around the ways in which business will structure to allow people to physically come in, but also accommodate remote working. So let's go with the first one first. Yes. Are there specific examples of platforms that have done particular things that you thought, oh, actually, okay, this isn't a real conference. It might not be a great substitute, but that's actually ingenious. And that's got me thinking about, I don't know, the event or the conversation I'm having in a different way. For example, Miro is a great uh, collaboration tool mm. that allows you to have the equivalent of a brainstorm or um, you're sticking out your post-it notes and you're scribbling each other's ideas and so forth. So I think there are definite platforms that help for the collaboration. I haven't come across platforms that act as anything more than the weakest substitute for social connection. Mm. Uh, and you, you can do that in small groups of two or three. But the equivalent of having a party virtually, I haven't come across anything that comes even close. No. I'm still waiting for the uh, whole Star Trek holodeck thing to happen. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> Childhood dream of mine. <laughs> um, so to the second point then, around around the way in which remote working now will impact the physical structuring of businesses in the future, what are your thoughts about how businesses will organise themselves? So for instance, do you think that instead of having people coming in five days a week and working back at their desks and it being the same as pre-COVID, do you think these might form physical culture hubs where people can work if they want to? What role do you envision for the mm. physical workspace? I, the, the role will be to, to make connections, to form relationships, to bounce ideas, to have fun. I mean, the part of the, the the great thing about work can be the joy of it, the laughter that we have, the, the watching someone over their shoulder seeing a funny video and you go and look at it yourself and you have a chat about it and all of those things they, that, that have been lost in large part as a result. So I think what we'll need to do is to find ways to bring people together, not just their existing work team, because those are the six or eight or ten people you see are virtually in any case, mm. but it's all the other people you bump into that you wouldn't normally talk to. I certainly found between the two lockdowns in London that when I went into the office, I could in 10 minutes glean information from three or four people that I would never have had or, and I wasn't getting remotely uh, and able to solve a couple of problems that people have been bothered with quickly and immediately that, again, would never have happened remotely. Mm. Um, so we'll need to organise to bring people together at times in ways that aren't just the natural work team, but actually get the interaction and the connections with other people. Mm. At the same time, there's enormously valuable things that can be done remotely. 
and it saves on commutes. It means you can really focus on if you're writing a document or a, a paper or something like that. And also there'll be ways to get people together from lots of geographically dispersed parts. So the way we think about talent will, will alter a bit as well. Mm. Equally, if we look at roles that are entirely done remotely, then the chances are, why do we need to be in the same country? Even Why couldn't we be somewhere else altogether? Mm. So I think actually it's in everybody's interests, uh, the companies and the individuals, to create a time for be physically in, in person and recognise and appreciate the benefits of that. So I'd like to take us down a slightly different track now. And I want to ask you about what you think the role is for ethics within successful businesses, especially as people seem to be more concerned and more vocal about issues of sustainability and climate impact and divestment from fossil fuels. So what role do you think ethics plays in being a successful business? Uh, I think ethics has been central and is going to become more and more central. The, The way we present and how we show up will be the determining factor in our reputation externally and also, as importantly, in our reputation to bring in, attract and retain great talent. And that if you believe that talent is a key uh, source of advantage, you'll want to have the kind of company that brings in the sorts of people who will be at the top end of their their contributions for your business. And those will be people for whom uh, a clear set of values and behaving with integrity will be very important. At the same time, what's really interesting about ethics is we all think we are more ethical than everybody else. So we have a very high... I mean, we all have a bias. We all think we're better drivers, funnier, better taste <laughs> than the average person. But with ethics, the, the, the gap is really quite significant. And so if you ask people how a range of ethical questions, they will rate themselves significantly higher than um, the average. Even people who are incarcerated in prison for having committed a crime think that they are more ethical than uh, most people. So um, this bias is quite significant. So this suggests two really interesting things. First of all, people are always going to find fault with everybody else. They can look at the organisation, they haven't behaved properly and they haven't um, done the right things and therefore I might take a a front from that. And then secondly, they're not going to recognise when they're doing it themselves. And therefore there are ways in which we can build ethical cultures which are not the tools that companies tend to use. So, for example, um, people think that traditional economists will tell you if you find someone for doing something, they're less likely to do it. And if you give them a bonus for doing something, they're more likely to do it. Uh, Behavioural economists, not at all so sure. So there's a great experiment in Israel with childcare centres where they measured the number of late pickups across 10 childcare centres, and they were basically the same. And then in six of them, they introduced a system of small fines for being late to pick up your child. And actually, the level of late pickups that you think would go down when they introduced the fines, the traditional economists would tell you, actually went up. It more than doubled. Wow. And then, even more interestingly, 10 weeks later, they removed the fines. So, again, traditional economic theory would say it would go back to where it was before, mm. but actually didn't make any difference. The late pickups carried on the same. Poor kids. And what had <laughs> happened? I know, poor kids. But the, what had happened is the decision had moved from being a social one I must do the right thing by the school or by my child to a a financial one. Mm. I can pay $3 and I get an extra 15 minutes or half an hour's babysitting. And I've got this very important meeting with Natalie and quite frankly, that's worth $3. (laughs) So you reframe the decision. Mm. So when we're looking at how we get people to behave more ethically, there are lots of things that behavioural science teaches us that will greatly help. But they aren't traditional things about codes of conduct, whistleblowing hotlines, uh, ethical dilemma training. These do not work. Mm. Reducing, for example, sense of unfairness Mm. does work. So to that point then, I'm curious about what you think might happen with 
the ways in which we signal our values, our ethics, and also even our status as things change. A lot of the research I was reading was around how younger cohorts of people, so between the ages of about 18 and 40, let's say, want to work for companies that espouse certain values that are similar to their own, and they're willing to take a pay cut. Obviously, I'm making a generalisation here, but there does seem to be some really interesting uh, trend towards that particular shift in behaviour. So given that younger generations are perhaps more interested in working for a company that espouses similar values than the ones they hold, and they are possibly less motivated by extrinsic motivations such as money and potentially promotions, what do you imagine might become the new signals of status for those demographics? And you know, I don't know whether you want to sort of think of that in terms of the consumer or in terms of being at work. But if status is not denoted by wealth and authority and consumerism, what might we start to see happening? Well, I think what we're seeing is a really interesting difference amongst the most financially successful people in society. If you go back to John Paul Getty or, or, or Randolph Hearst, you know, their status was to build enormous temples, mm-hmm. houses, or uh, a Rome villa in, in California and LA in John Paul Getty's example. Um, nowadays, you see that the, the Bill Gates of this world is about philanthropy. Mm-hmm is how do I solve a problem like polio or malaria? And so I think that we will hopefully see that trickle down uh, in through all of society to say that actually what matters is how are we helping others? Mm. How are we contributing in ways to make the world a slightly better place than it would be if we hadn't intervened? Uh, and that will show up both in the work I choose to do and the impact of the work I have, and also in how I choose to uh, distort my time. And I may be more likely to distort it in ways that help people who have had greater headwinds than me uh, and therefore to give them a bit of a benefit from my headwinds uh, and support them. So in that frame then, what qualities do you think will make for great leaders in the businesses of the future? Uh, It's a gloriously rich and delicious question. And I'm (laughs) going to pick a couple, not to say this is in any way um, exhaustive. One of the core attributes that not only will make great leaders, but actually makes us happier. It's pretty, there are very few things that universally make everybody happier, mm-hmm. but this is one of them, and that is continuously learning. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the great leaders um, of the future, and I think probably the great leaders of today, are ones open to new ideas, they're voracious readers of books, or find other ways to garner new information. There's a lovely study on the impact of CEOs who tend to peak uh, at 4.7 years, which is a wonderfully precise number. <laughs> but what's more interesting, perhaps, is the reason why. And what happens is that when a new CEO arrives, they start to gather information equally from internal and external sources. So clearly they listen to their teams and employees, but they also go out to the market and to customers and so on and so forth. But after a while, they stop with the external and they start to rely on their loyal lieutenants. Mm. And that gives them less good information and therefore they make worse decisions and their performance starts to decline. So the way you become an outlier is to continue learning. So I think one of the great strengths that we want to build amongst all leaders of any level is this appetite for learning, learning to learn, if you like. Mm. We, we, we call them lunatics, um, <laughs> which is a lunatic is someone who knows what to do when they don't know what to do. So I like that. that would be my, one of my first traits for, for leaders of the future. Okay. Um, thinking sort of about the decision-making in leaders and employees as things become more complex, are there any interventions that you've seen that can be particularly effective in helping better decision-making? Yes, lots. Um, I think the first thing that I think we are going to see is the end of the 
training program as such or the learning program, this kind of idea that you go away for three days or three days now and three days in, in, in six months' time. And that's the core of learning. Mm. And we're going to see much more learning journeys of continually learning and adapting and trialling and practising and, and, and adopting. And I'll give you an example for a programme that we've been running now for 10 years. We run a programme called Parent Gym. One of these single factors that most determines a child's life chances other than their birth situation is the quality of parenting they have. Uh, and by and large, people don't do an enormous amount, government societies and so forth, to help improve the quality of parenting. So 10 years ago, we started a programme where we run bite-sized, distributed, 90 minutes once a week for uh, six weeks on different topics, parenting classes yeah. uh, in the most socially challenged and deprived parts of society. And what we find is that after two or three weeks, people start to change their habits. Hmm. We had a, a mother come in that day, my partner, many of them don't have partners, but she did, said, you haven't shouted all week. Why is that? And she realised that she'd been doing one-to-one time with each child, which is one of the techniques to cover in the class. And as a result, everything had gone a lot more smoothly. Uh, and we've since evaluated this programme. Five different studies from four universities have evaluated it and found that not only does it improve um, parenting self-efficacy and childhood outcomes, but it also has a strong impact on mental health, mm. uh, where the correlation is, is as great as that between gender and height. So it's so quite significant. That's huge. And I think some of the conversations that you know I've previously had, you've talked about how some of these seemingly quite small or subtle interventions can have quite large impacts, not only in one sector or, or domain of one's life, but also in other domains. Do you feel that there are certain contexts that make it easier for people to engage in some of these habit-changing behaviours than others? So, for instance, through the workplace, do you feel you can kind of sneak some of these in and then it ends up having this wonderful ripple-out effect? It absolutely affects all of life. The workplace is a great environment because time is allocated for it. <laughs> And companies are willing to fund it in order for individuals to benefit from it. Mm. So I, all I have to do is to show up, if you like. I don't have to pick up my wallet and pay for it. And I don't actually have to usually find extra time for it that I might in the normal working day. That said, we change much more when we believe it's in our own best interest. Mm. So the best way to help someone improve their habits is to find something that really matters to them and show how changing their habit will help them achieve that. For example, we were working with a postal service and there was the managers of the postal service, the supervisors, who'd often been there 18, 20 or more years. The company wanted them to be better at coaching and helping new arrivals. Mm. But their attitude was a bit like, oh, in 18 years they'll be as good as me. That's how you <laughs> onboard here and weren't terribly interested in this new coaching and onboarding. But when we spoke to them, the thing they most cared about, they, most of them had children, they cared about their children, they were very keen their children had a more successful life as they saw it than them. And one of their moments of truth was homework. They didn't quite know how to intervene or help with homework when their child was struggling. So we ran a, a series of bite-sized sessions on one which was called Helping Hand. Mm. How do you help someone when they're stuck? And we said, you know what, you can even practice this on the new posties that arrive in the mail service. <laughs> Uh, uh, and then to get really good at it when you go to your children. And they were like, brilliant. Um, their only question was, I can't understand why the business is paying for it. So we ended up pleasing everybody. Their children were better off, for better help with homework. They felt better off as parents. And the company was happy because the new people brought in were coached and supported in, in new ways. That's brilliant. I love how well you managed to weave those different motivations together. So if I were to ask you then what you envision an exciting, resilient business to look like in the future? If you could dream up uh, your most fantastic idea of what that would be, 
What would characterize it for you? First of all, I mentioned earlier, which is continuous learning. Yes. We'd all be learning, we'd be trialing, we'd be experimenting, we'd be quick to make decisions that things that didn't work and quick to keep learning new things. And we'd therefore come much more with um, evidence and data. Mm. We'd have a very high standard of excellence. I think that one of the things that we can get lost in the popularity of fads like, let us say, collaboration, is that we lose focus on the quality of the output and the end deliverable. So excellence I would have as a very high factor in this. I would also have the ability to have very candid conversations, mm. to speak directly to each other in ways that don't damage or diminish people's identity and are received in ways where I don't let it damage or diminish my identity. Mm. But also we speak truth to each other and therefore we can learn faster and move faster and deliver better results. To that point about being able to be candid with other people and to receive things in a way that's perhaps constructive, you know, at some point in all relationships, mistakes tend to happen and trust can break. And whether we're talking about relationship between people or between a brand and its customers or between colleagues, what do you feel are some of the most important elements that must be present to be able to repair and rebuild trust when it's lost. Certainly. Well, I come first to the colleague one, which in a funny way is the easiest. Hmm. And part of it is calling it, is noticing it. You know, I had a colleague the other day who said to me, you know, we seem to work incredibly well, but the last 10 days haven't been like this. And here are half a dozen examples where we seem to have miscued a bit. And I'm wondering if you notice the same and what you think might be going on. Mm. And then we had a really healthy and fruitful conversation and, and we're now back in the, the pre-the-10 day stage. Mm. You know, and I think certain things had happened and we hadn't spoken enough and we were able to fix that quite quickly. Mm. Uh, and I think that was very emotionally intelligent to, to call it in that way and describe it. So I think describing what we see is going on and owning the conclusion from that is really helpful. Mm. And then on the other side, being willing to lean in and recognise that the relationship is on both sides and that having been given that information to welcome it and to use it and to work together to resolve it. So I think there are definite ways as individuals we can help rebuild broken relationships. And this is absolutely critical because it's an inevitable part of being human that this will happen. Yes, yeah. I think the second thing we can do is to be more generous and endow people more positively. So we see someone doing something and we can say, oh my gosh, they're trying to trick me or get one ahead or whatever. And actually often it's an action of omission and they haven't thought about it or there's another reason for something that hasn't occurred. And therefore I think that, that, that positive endowment and generosity is, is also really helpful. Mm. Another thing that I want to touch on um, is the concern that many people have about the future of automation on their work, on their career, on the workplace in general, and the impact that this will have on their livelihoods. From your perspective, what are the human qualities that we bring that technology currently can't replace what makes humans special well several things we've talked about already i think yeah. behaving ethically <laughs> and making moral decisions is a really hard thing for uh, technology to do uh, building relationships again is incredibly difficult for technology to do it can enable it between two people but it requires people to, to to be there judgment is another area where technology finds it very hard in making judgments particularly those that relate to people and therefore, I think there are a whole host of areas where people are absolutely instrumental and that what will happen, as has happened with the uh, previous industrial revolutions and technological revolutions, is that new roles will appear and new skills will exist. Mm. And therefore, those who either have the aptitude or the ability to learn will end up finding there are new opportunities for them and they will prosper. And the challenge will be those who are either unable or don't have the opportunity to learn 
and are in roles that can be replaced by technology. So back to your point again about the absolute necessity of lifelong learning. Uh, there, are, there are a few things more important. If you look at longevity, you look at quality of life, you look at happiness, you look at uh, uh, financial security, learning becomes just such a key factor in all of that. And therefore the challenge perhaps in schools is to how do we get people to love learning? How do we set our children up to think of learning as something that you always want to be doing? Uh, and to rejoice in it. Interestingly enough, when they initially launched cable TV, they tested the idea of a learning channel and it absolutely um, bombed in research. And when they renamed it the Discovery Channel and kind of the rest is history. So there's something about how we frame these things that can make an enormous difference. But the core spirit of continuous learning is really important. And piquing people's curiosity with a bit of interesting language use can make, can make a huge change. Absolutely, absolutely. So if you had to choose one thing and maybe you want to pick something that you've already touched upon or maybe something else but if you had to choose one thing that you believe will be absolutely vital to the long-term sustainable success of a business what what would you say what would that be i would talk about the way in which we help set people up to succeed we set people up to flourish we build on people's strengths Mm. Um, we recognise that uh, you're different like me, we're all different from each other, and that has great uh, value in and of itself. Uh, and therefore, we find ways to create the right environment, the right psychological safety, the right capability uh, to allow people to be their best selves. And if they aren't the right selves for the organisations we are, we're very frank and honest about it, and we help them find ways to go somewhere where they can be their best selves. And as individuals, we take responsibility for that too. And we say, what can I do to be my best self? What do I need to adapt and change and learn to to flourish in this environment? And that we see the responsibility of successful organisations being distributed across everybody, rather than it's the leader's job or the manager's Mm job. Uh, And I think we're quick to find fault with others. Uh, but we'd be better off looking first to ourselves. That sounds like a complete overhaul and therapy for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I think many great leaders are doing it already. It's definitely the way modern businesses are heading. There are five psychological conditions for a modern company that you want to create. Mm. Uh, the first is agency that we've touched on. Uh, the second is hope. Hope is a really strong correlate with all sorts of performance factors. The third is belonging, uh, which again we've touched on. The fourth is purpose. And the fifth is joy. Mm. So as a modern company, what you will want to do is to create those five conditions as much as possible. And there are lots of ways of doing that. And if you want to do that with mine, Jim, just want to give you a little cheeky shout out. Uh, what's the best place for people to start? We run experiences, both bite-sized live workshops and digital experiences, and they're all integrated together uh, all over the world. We run about 500 live courses a month at the moment, mostly delivered virtually because of the current working environment. And then we also have, uh, we have, I think we have 3 million people now uh, come to a mind gym experience wow. all over the world as well. We have coaches in 40 countries and we're helping companies help their people become more successful uh, and more productive and happier and flourish and all the things that we've been touching about during this program. And I think at the core of this is that, that behavioural science will become the mainstay of how businesses make the most of their people. Um, so out with management science, in with behavioural science, and as a result, better, <laughs> healthier people and organisations. Brilliant. So I'd like to end on a two-part question, and you can drive this into any direction you would like. When you imagine the future and the best possible version of what that could be, what kind of world is it that you 
most would like to build. Our mission when we set up MindGym right at the beginning was to help people use their minds more effectively so they can get more out of life and give more to others. And that is what we are here to, to do. We do it predominantly in the world of work because that's where we can get lots of people quickly and, and have a big impact. But it applies obviously much more broadly. We have, as I mentioned, parent gym, we might do mind gym prisons or anywhere else as well. And so what I'd like to do, in the contribution we would like to make, is to help people make better choices by understanding how their minds work, the consequences of decisions they make, uh, and therefore improve the quality of their lives and the quality of the lives of the people who, who they connect with. And therefore we see this as a kind of a mass movement, if you like, a kind of social uh, effect of individuals recognising that we choose how we think far more than we realise and that by making better choices, we can improve the quality of everything around us. Mm. And so if there's one thing that people listening could do, one step that they could take to help move us towards that direction, what would you suggest they do? Where would they start? Listening. I would take to listening, understanding, taking time to recognise where others are and to notice what is going on would be a great place to begin. Uh, I'd obviously encourage reading lots of psychology books. So there is even a Mind Gym book called Mind Gym Wake Your Mind Up. It got to number two on the Amazon behind Harry Potter back in the day. So <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to mention that. And, and we've written some other books as well. Uh, there's one called Give Me Time. <laughs> Uh, uh, and there's one called on relationships and those three published everywhere but the US and then there was a new book published in the US um, which was like a simulation of those three mm-hmm. and we're very excited about how by understanding behavioural science and making it really practical the first chapter of the first book is called Don't Read This Book <laughs> uh, partly because Partly because if you tell someone not to do something, what, what, what are they likely to do? Um, but also because there's a question at the beginning and you fill it in saying what you care about and then it tells you which chapters that you'll most enjoy. Mm. So I think there's lots of doing things in a counterintuitive way. And I think the joy of this subject area is that so much of what really makes a difference isn't what you think will make a difference. We aren't rational, but we are actually quite predictable as human beings. And therefore, let's use the science of that predictability to make better choices and better decisions. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.